Hey, welcome back to Well, That's Interesting, the You're Gonna Need to Give Me More Details Here edition. Today is episode 164. We need to talk about this turtle, and then we need to talk about this bubble. My friends, today's title is deceptively simple. The two topics we're gonna cover are nothing short of historic, yet sounds so implausible. You'd be forgiven if you respond by saying something along the lines of, no, no fucking way. In the first half of the show, quite possibly the most American thing you'll ever hear. Well, the most American thing you'll hear today. Back in 1775, in the very early days of the Revolutionary War, the fledgling United States, which was called the United Colonies at the time, had a bit of an issue to overcome if they wanted independence. That little issue was the entire British Navy. The Brits had fleets, lots of them. And the UC, well, they had an innovative spirit and the deepest desire to blow shit up. This inherited combination, as we've seen war after war after war, has given birth to some of the most groundbreaking, horrifying inventions. Please see episode 160, Nuclear Blasts, Pigs, and Interstellar Manhole, Let's Talk About Operation Plumbob, for reference. At this time, however, in the mid-1770s, thankfully, all the infant U.S. had to play with was wood, tar, and a bit of metal. When you mix in a bit of courage, my friends, you get the world's first submersible vessel with a documented record of use in combat, a.k.a. the first war submarine. Yes, the first submarine used for battle was invented here in the early days of the United States, and it was used against the British just 40 minutes from my apartment in the waters of Lower Manhattan. No fucking way, am I right? That's what I said when I learned that the first war submarine was used in New York City, and it was called the Turtle. I will explain and even show you why. Then after the break, the biggest goddamn bubble ever discovered. So far. And of course, it's in space. My friends, (laughs) I've dropped so many number bombs on you over the course of this show, and I'm sure they've shattered your mind. And thanks to this bubble, it ain't gonna stop. It's only gonna get more mind-blowing and terrifying, but in a good way. In sum, a structure that can only be described as a bubble, nearly, get this, one billion light years across, yes, a billion light years across, has been found, and it could be a relic from the Big Bang. I know, it's hard, I I know, it's an old, gigantic bubble, and uh, we're going to peer inside it. Mm-hmm. Researchers have an idea of what it is, how it formed, and what's within. And it's going to be my honor to tell you all of those things. And then we're both going to walk away slowly, knowing something the size of a billion light years across is just floating out there. That's, that's the plan. No fucking way. Am I right? Mm-hmm. Did you say it again? Hi, I'm Jill Chacha. And if this is your first time listening, welcome to the flock, my tiny business goose. Oh God, to begin, we need to travel to a time when the country we know as the United States was at war. And if you're thinking, 
Oh, can you narrow that down for me, please? Oh, well, you're right. Okay, hold on. I need to be more specific. Okay. <clears throat> Let's fire up the old time machine to an era when a rather large group of extremists had grown shockingly organized. When racial and gender bias was abhorrent and the old, and, and only a handful could own a home. Okay, I'm sure that didn't help either. Fuck it. Look, it's 11 p.m. on September 7th, 1776. And if you know anything about U.S. history, that year should ring a bell. As an American myself, I could say this country dry humps that year every 4th of July so hard that literal sparks fly. We love it. But on September 7th, 1776, there was no United States. It was called the United Colonies, and we would have to wait two more days until the official name change. Fun fact, the title United States of America became official, quote, on September 9th, 1776, when the Second Continental Congress adopted a new name for what had been called the United Colonies. The moniker, United States of America, has remained since as a symbol of freedom and independence, end quote, from the National Constitution Center. Okay, my friends, we are at the start of an eight-year war known as a Revolutionary War, and Sergeant Ezra Lee just washed up on the shores of Lower Manhattan. Exhausted and disoriented, he looked behind him to see British soldiers just hauling ass, returning to occupied Governor's Island. For they had been chasing Lee on the East River, only to witness him unloading what looked to be bombs? Yeah, they were right. During the watery chase, Lee ditched his pile of explosives into the river where it exploded, quote, with tremendous violence, throwing large amounts of water and pieces of wood that composed it high into the air, end quote, from Barnett Schechter's 2002 book, The Battle for New York. My friends, this was the final scene of an historic moment. Ezra had been the sole pilot of a one-man submarine, the first combat submarine ever. And although his mission failed and literally went up in smoke, it makes for one hell of a good story. How the sub came to be and its objective, you may ask? That is a great question. We need to get into this. So join me, will you, a smidge farther back in time, and we're looking over the shoulder of a young inventor and engineer named David Bushnell. Like so many white men on this land before and after him, David was obsessed with figuring out how to perfect bombs. He literally wanted to make waves and a name for himself, so he dove into a field of warfare that really had no progress as of the early 1770s, Naval combat on the seas saw little need for improvement. But, boy howdy, to attack from below? That had never been achieved successfully. So, while studying at Yale University, he ventured into, you guessed it, underwater explosives at Yale. And because the universe is funny like that, David's time at Yale and his work serendipitously coincided with a war on the cusp of breaking out. And one side desperately needed an advantage. By early 1775, David had created a reliable method of detonating submerged bombs. He had achieved his first dream. 
According to history.navy.mil, Bushnell was the first to demonstrate that gunpowder could be exploded underwater. The bomb's structure, if you will, was said gunpowder, packed into a tiny waterproofed wooden keg that was attached with a clock-based trigger mechanism. And by April 1775, the war had begun, and David was a Yale graduate. With one success already under his belt, David probably felt a confidence only a white man in 1775 can feel. (laughs) And with this, he returned to his family farm near Middlesex County, Connecticut, and began work on the next logical step, designing some sort of machine that could deliver that bomb to its target. It would also have to maneuver gracefully underwater, and keep the pilot within alive and somehow not be detected. That's a lot. Now, in terms of inspiration and influence for David's upcoming invention, historians believe he was very, very well aware of the work of the wonderfully named Dutch inventor Cornelius Driebel, which, look, I think is either pronounced Driebel or Drebel. (laughs) (laughs) Drebel? Okay. I'm going to go with Dribble. They both sound watery, and I think it's perfect, but I'm going to go with Dribble. okay? So, according to Yield Wiki, the Dreeb actually was the first to create and invent and build an operational submarine in 1620. 1620, which is a fact that's making you think, then why the fuck is David created for building it? That is a great question. I got you. I had to dig into this. So please... Head on over to to today's social media stuffs and swipe all the way through and you shall see the Dribble submarine. Now, if you're too busy steering your own Dribble and take that as you wish, um, I shall describe it to you now. I'm sorry. Okay. Think of a submarine. For real. Just think of a submarine and how they look today. I swear this is what it resembles. It's made from planks of wood and leather. Now, if you imagine that sub with like three portholes on one side and three on the other. Okay, thank you. And instead of windows, imagine an oar sticking out of each porthole. Voila, my friends, that is the Dribble. And the wiki has a lovely blurb about its features and history. Okay, get this. Quote, The model, with six oars and could carry 16 passengers, who I assume would have to take turns rowing, was demonstrated to King James I and several thousand Londoners in person. The submarine stayed submerged for three hours and could travel from Westminster to Greenwich and back, cruising at a depth depth between 12 and 15 feet. Dribble even took King James in the submarine on a test dive beneath the Thames, making King James I the first monarch to travel underwater. End quote. Yes. Yep, my friends, the rich have been dicking around in submersibles since 1620. However, despite Dribble's achievement of building a functioning sub, it was not um, a craft that could how could I say, stealthily approach an enemy ship? I mean, coordinating six people with slap-happy oars is kind of a mess. In sum, it was a sight to behold. 
but never set sail. So, my soaked business goose, let's return to David, who was probably very well aware of the Dribble's limitations. So, let's ask ourselves, what if we took that sub, okay, and shrank it? And instead of six drivers, why not one pilot who can maneuver any dials himself and could nearly all parts and doodads be contained inside the vessel? Like, could it be done? Well, these are some tough engineering questions not even the young and fabulous David could answer. He would need some help. And boy, howdy, he got it. Because the universe is funny like that, just a stone's throw away in New Haven, Connecticut, lived someone you could easily call a genius, a natural, when it came to building things. Enter the also wonderfully named Isaac Doolittle. Mm-hmm. Isaac Doolittle. Who is, as you are about to learn, more like Isaac do everything. On an abbreviated list of accomplishments, Isaac was a well-known clockmaker, engraver, silversmith, brass manufacturer, why not, and inventor. He had both, quote, designed and manufactured complicated brass wheel hall clocks, a mahogany printing press in 1769, uh, which included the first... Uh, it was the first one made in America, by the way, and Doolittle successfully duplicated an iron screw that hadn't been seen before. Like, yeah. And continuing the quote, he made brass compasses and surveying instruments. He also founded and owned a brass foundry where he built bells. <laughs> Sorry. Um, at the start of the American Revolution. The wealthy and patriotic Doolittle built a gunpowder mill with two partners in New Haven to support the war and was sent by the Connecticut government to prospect for lead, end quote. And that was all from the wiki. Oof, I'm out of breath. But in sum, my equally ingenious business goose, Isaac, was born for this role. He had the experience, the know-how, an extra perk. He had the funding. So... David and Do Everything put their minds together, and over the course of a year, the following was made. So please, stop dribbling yourself and head on over to our social media stuffs and tap on today's post. <laughs> Sorry. It's, oh, God. <clears throat> you shall see a replica of what would become the world's first combat submarine. I can't believe I put those two words, to, two sentences together. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> now, for those of you who are too busy taking care of a loved one or something else that, in my mind, can wait, I will describe this replica to you. Okay, so please imagine an acorn. For real, like a brown acorn. That's what I think it looks like. But Sergeant Ezra Lee... Uh, remember him? He's the guy who washed up on the lower, on the shores of Lower Manhattan. Okay, he thought the shape resembles <clears throat> more of a clam. <laughs> and I have to tell you, I have to tell you when I read that, my mind immediately said, "Put it on a tee, please. Just put it on a tee, my friends." The next thing I'm going to tell you, I think, is I think my strongest work ever. Okay, so I need you to head on over to our social media stuffs and swipe through, and I want you to behold, it's happening. 
It's a cartoon clam. Yes, surrounded by lit sticks of TNT and surrounded by the glorious words, this clam sinks ships. I, I had to do it, I had to create it, and I need to know if you want this to go to print because it's, it, it can happen. So let me know if you want one as a tea or as a sticker. I had to do it, okay. <clears throat> now back to this other creation. That's right, we were talking about something else. Okay, David, the original mind behind this idea and the dude in charge, he felt the outer casing looked more like the shell of a turtle. And thus, the vessel was officially dubbed the turtle. Boring. Okay, fine. Anyway, please tell me what you think it looks like in the comments section over on our social media stuffs. And uh, in the meantime, I'm going to tell you what's inside and how it works. And as you may have already probably guessed, it was Isaac Doolittle who actually say it with me now, did do everything when it came to putting it together. Uh, according to Roy Manston and Frederick Fries's 2010 book, Turtle, David Bunchell's, I'm sorry, David Bushnell's Revolutionary Vessel. <laughs> sorry. Turtle, David Bushnell's Revolutionary Vessel, quote, Based on Isaac's mechanical engineering expertise and previous experience in design and manufacturing, it seems Doolittle designed and crafted, and probably funded, the brass and moving parts of the turtle, including the propulsion system, navigation instruments, the brass-footed operating water ballast and forcing pumps, the depth gauge and compass, the brass crown hatch, the clockwork detonator, and the hand-operated propeller crank and foot-driven treadle with flywheel." End quote. I'm out of breath, but because that's because it was the whole thing. My friends, the whole fucking thing. And that propeller, by the way, had never been seen before. It was a thing of genius. You know the propellers we have on boats today? Yeah, that's what this guy invented, basically. And although it was manually operated, it allowed the turtle to move, to move forwards and back quickly and quietly. It was an absolute first and a total game changer. In terms of dimensions, the turtle was about 10 feet long and about six feet across. The eggcorn clam turtle casing consisted of two wooden shells covered with tar and was reinforced with steel bands. She was waterproof and ready to go. Speaking of go, how the fuck really? You may be asking, like, wait, what about air? <laughs> and seeing at night, or seeing at all, like, what? Yeah, great questions. Kara Giamo of Atlas Obscura had a great description. Quote, the whole thing was basically one giant cockpit. The pilot, or as one admirer put it, the adventurer concealed within sat on a chair in the middle. He was accompanied by half an hour's worth of breathable air, which he could replenish by bobbing up to the surface and uncapping a couple of bronze tubes in the... In I can say that again. <laughs> he, was he was accompanied by half an hour's worth of breathable air, which he could replenish by bobbing up to the surface and uncapping a couple of bronze tubes in the ceiling. 
A complex series of pedals, cranks, and hand rudders allowed said adventurer to move in three dimensions, to sink and rise, move forwards and backwards, and turn. For daytime visibility, he could peer through a series of glass peepholes. At night, he had to go by barometer and compass, which were illuminated by foxfire, wood infested by a bioluminescent bioluminescent fungus, which glowed well in the pitch black water and, unlike flame, didn't use up any oxygen. Another set of gizmos let him automatically attach the underwater bomb to the keel of a ship put a pin in that, and set the clockwork mechanism that would trigger the explosion. End quote. Holy shit, my friends, that last part about the Foxfire is pretty fucking awesome. (laughs) That is so creative. A bioluminescent fungus? Fucking genius. So, here we are, with a vessel that just might work. There's just one problem, though. Who's going to drive the thing? Who has the coordination? Who has the stamina to move all these parts constantly, all while while keeping an eye on time, the navigation, and could ignore the fact you're underwater with no one to rescue you? It's risky as hell. Not even David wanted to do it. So, he volunteered a sibling. That's right. (laughs) I'm serious. David's brother, Ezra Bushnell, was put to the test, and he actually practiced piloting the sub in the Connecticut River. And I swear to God, it turns out, by August 1776, Ezra Bushnell was a pro. Round of applause. He fucking nailed it. And now, with the war almost two years in, with no end in sight, and with the British having captured and currently occupying the extremely critical port that was Lower Manhattan, you bet your ass George Washington was willing to take a chance on the turtle. Okay, are you ready for this? Okay, look, 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 shh, 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 listen, look, listen. Here's the plan. Are you listening? Shh, 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 shh. Okay, I'm George Washington, and we're going to have to whisper, don't laugh, don't laugh. (laughs) I'm George Washington, and we're going to have to whisper because it's a secret plan. Okay, it's totally going to work. Her Majesty's pride and joy, the HMS Eagle, is docked there right now. I know it's a 64-gun behemoth of a ship, but don't worry. The guns can't get to you when underwater, okay? So just, just sneak up next to it, okay? At night, and then drill three bombs into the hull. Okay, that should take it down. And just imagine what destroying the symbol of British naval power could mean for us. Also, some of my teeth came from the enslaved. End scene. Yes, thank you. I know. That was great. I felt it. I felt like George Washington. That was great. Thank you. So, my courageous business goose, here we are. The plan is in motion, but the universe is funny, like we said before. It turns out Ezra Bushnell got sick. So sick he couldn't pilot the craft. Another Ezra, coincidentally named, was nominated. Bushnell asked General Samuel Holden Parsons for volunteers to operate the turtle, and the general didn't even blink. Crazy Ezra Lee, an experienced Navy sergeant, was pointed out and was totally fucking game for this. No questions asked. Quote, He was only able to practice with it a few times before. Late on the night of September 7th, a couple of whaling boats towed him out to the harbor 
and left him to complete his mission. End quote from Atlas Obscura. My friends, get this. Even though Ezra was able to hitch a ride, the whaling boats could only get so close without being detected. Ezra still had to manually maneuver the ship, using all of his goddamn limbs, for two hours before making it to the HMS Eagle. And remember, during those two hours, he had to replenish his air supply every 30 minutes. It's just, it's just crazy. Eventually... Ezra made it to the hull of the HMS Eagle, and he was so close to the enemy, my friends, quote, I could see the men on the deck and hear them talk, end quote, as he would later write in his report. In the darkness, against the current, Ezra bicycle kicked and cranked the turtle to the surface so the fuse to the first bomb could be lit. Success. Next, the timer. The timer... done. And now, the last part. We have to drill this lit keg, this lit keg of gunpowder, into the wooden hull of this ship. With the drill extended, Ezra made the first jab and turned the mechanism. The drill went nowhere. Okay, okay, don't panic. Let's try uh, another location. Let's try this spot right here. Nothing. The same occurred. The drill was unable to pierce the wood. Ezra checked the air gauge and only 20 minutes remained. The timer on the bomb? Even less. Ezra made several more more attempts, but alas, they all failed. And then it dawned on him. The hull wasn't made of wood. It was probably made of metal. They had the wrong information this whole time. And now, with so many attempts at drilling into the HMS Eagle, the British had taken notice. And now... They had taken chase. Here we are, at the top of the show, and the final scene of an historic moment. Ezra aborted the plan, turning back to Manhattan's shore and ditching the lit keg into the East River. Kablooey. At least the bomb worked. So, my adventurous business goose, you may be wondering, is that it? Was that the last of the turtle? Well, not quite. She set out on one more operation because when Americans fail, we fail harder. Just a month later, on October 5th, Sergeant Lee was back at it in an attempt to attach a bomb to a ship also anchored off Manhattan. However, he was spotted early and had to abort, pedaling away. Then, only four days later, on October 9th, tragedy. While the turtle was being transported aboard a wee sailboat... Not one, not two, but three ships from the Royal Navy opened fire. The HMS Phoenix, Roebuck, and the Tartar, yes, like the sauce, sank the sailboat in the Hudson River, somewhere between Fort Washington near Manhattan and Fort Lee, New Jersey. The turtle was lost, but it became a legend. After the break, perhaps the turtle's dream had its bubble burst, But this bubble, the one we're going to cover, oh my god. (laughs) Its size and what's inside, oh god, what's inside will leave you shook. Please, stay tuned. Have you ever wondered what really happened to Amelia Earhart or the lost colony of Roanoke? 
Do you ever find yourself scouring the internet for vicious Victorians and their murders by gaslight? Or perhaps you're just sick and tired of women being constantly misrepresented or plain lied about throughout history? If so, join me, Katie Charlwood, history harlot and reader of books. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Part of the Area of Media Network. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Adios, au revoir, au revoir de zen, my friends. Bye-bye. I'll be seeing you. There are really many reasons to listen to our podcast, Big Picture Science. It's kind of a challenge to summarize them all, Molly. Okay, here's a reason to listen to our show, Big Picture Science, because you love to be surprised by science news. We love to be surprised by science news. So, for instance, I learned on our own show that I had been driving around with precious metals in my truck before it was stolen. That was brought up in our show about precious metals and also rare metals, like most of the things in your catalytic converter. I was surprised to learn that we may begin naming heat waves like we do hurricanes. You know, prepare yourself for heat wave Lucifer. I don't think I can prepare myself for that. Look, we like surprising our listeners. We like surprising ourselves by reporting new developments in science and while asking the big picture questions about why they matter and how they will affect our lives today and in the future. Well, we can't affect lives in the past, right? No, I I guess that's a point. (laughs) So the podcast is called Big Picture Science and You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts. We are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us. We hope you'll take a listen. And we're back. We are so back. And my friends, I've got some great news. We're going to Hawaii. (laughs) Yes, yes. And, And I've got even better news. We're about to feel infinitesimally small. Because we truly, truly quite literally are. And a recently discovered bubble is going to prove it. Join me, will you, at the University of Hawaii at Manoa, where astronomer Brent Tully from the university's Institute for Astronomy is plugging away with his team. And I have to say, their objective is very similar to counting grains of sand on a seemingly infinite beach. Back in 2022, Brent co-authored a document called Cosmic Flows 4, which very long story short, has identified 55,877 galaxies and then compiled them into 38,065 groups. If that sounds impressive, it fucking is. Thanks to Brent and fellow authors, we know, for example, where these galaxies are located in space. It's one hell of a reference manual. And because humans are human, the eventual goal is to count and locate as many galaxies as fucking possible. The shape and scope of our universe really comes into focus this way. So, you can say Cosmic Flows 4 is a living document to be edited and added to. So here we are, with Brent and the gang using the old CF4 as a kind of Google Maps, peering into the void to discover additional galaxies. And it turns out, stuff we're not even looking for. My friends, it's imagination time. Picture the Milky Way. Yeah, there she is, all spirally with one arm flared up and
and the other down in an opposite direction and, and moving and undulating, check out episode 162 for more about the actual shape slash dance move of our own galaxy, if you haven't had already. It's, it's, it's a dance move, and I'm not going to give it away here. But now, today, if you will, please zoom out. Zoom way the fuck out, away from the Milky Way, so far that it becomes a mere speck of light. I know, that's terrifying, but it's totally worth it, okay? Thank you. Now please, look left about 820 million light years. Perfect. Fabulous. You nailed it. Now you're going to notice something. You're going to notice something special, if you will. A series of galaxy clusters. There's what's called the Harvard-Smithsonian Great Wall, containing the Coma Cluster. There's the Hercules Cluster and the Sloan Great Wall. La la. There's the SCL-154 Supercluster and the Corona Borealis Supercluster, not entirely located in your kitchen. That's a Simpsons reference anyway. My friends, they're not just floating out there willy-nilly. I want you to arrange all of these clusters in a circle. Yes. Now, Brent and the team discovered that all these galaxy clusters formed a pattern, a circle, which meant they were probably being contained. It's possible. All of this was actually inside a gargantuan bubble. Yes, I don't know if you can hear those alarms and those sirens behind me, but that is exactly the right reaction. <laughs> that is exactly what it felt like. You heard me. A bubble. One so large, it envelops several galaxy clusters. It's giving end of 2001 Space Odyssey vibes, but instead of a gigantic fetus, it's thousands upon thousands of galaxies. Anyway, you're gonna need to zoom out even farther, my itty bitty business goose, to see the actual size of this thing. That's what Brent and the gang had to do. Quote, we were not even looking for it, he explained to hawaii.edu. It was so huge, it is so huge, that it spills to the edges of the sector of the sky we were analyzing." End quote. My friends, by now you probably have a few questions like, uh, pardon me? Excuse me? How? Also, what? Great questions. <laughs> According to Brent, uh, Ben Turner of LiveScience.com, as the astronomers were cataloging away, the mapping revealed a pattern in the cluster spacing. Quote, From this map emerged a ring one billion light years wide, its circumference dotted with galaxies and connected to cosmic filaments. End quote. My friends, if this is totally necessary. If you'd like to see an artist's rendering, hop on over to our social media stuffs. I highly recommend it. It really helps visualize what this thing is and helps put into perspective just how unfathomable one billion light years actually is. The Milky Way is in that drawing and um, it's a reference point. If you want to call a dot a reference point, my God. So what is this? Believe it or not, these bubbles have been seen before, but not one of this magnitude. It's something called baryon acoustic oscillation. And I'll say that again, baryon acoustic oscillation, or a BAO for short. And even 
Longer story short, it's a fucking pressure wave that's been frozen in time. <laughs> okay, that doesn't help. Okay, it was created in the beginning of the Big Bang. I'm sorry, it was created at the beginning of the universe during the Big Bang. And over billions of years, it's stretched, stretched out to enormous proportions by the universe's expansion and formation of things like galaxies. Hawaii.edu explains it in even further crazy detail. So once again, my friends, it's imagination time. Quote, In the well-established Big Bang theory, during the first 400,000 years, the universe is a cauldron of hot plasma similar to the interior of the sun. Within a plasma, electrons were separated from the atomic nuclei. During this period, regions with slightly higher density began to collapse under gravity, even as the intense bath of radiation attempted to push matter apart. This struggle between gravity and radiation made the plasma oscillate, or ripple, and spread outward. The largest ripples in the early universe depended on the distance a sound wave could travel. Set by the speed of sound in the plasma, this distance was almost 500 million light years, and was fixed once the universe cooled and stopped being plasma, leaving behind vast three-dimensional ripples. Throughout the eons, galaxies formed inside these now enormous bubble-like structures." End quote. Now, that was a lot. <laughs> Uh, you might want to rewind that and listen to it a few times. I had to read that like 500 times just to wrap my head around the idea that a wave could be a physical structure, a sound wave, could, it, and it's just there. It's there. And my friends, this bubble or BAO is so damn large and clearly ancient that it deserves a proper name. So Brent had a chat with Hawaiian language professor Larry Kimura and Im Imaiola Astronomy Center Executive Director Keiau Kimura. I nailed all of that. Uh, and they came up with something just gorgeous. And I want to say it was perfect. They named the bubble Ho'olealana, which was taken from a Hawaiian creation chant called Kumulipo. Its translation is, quote, from deep darkness came murmurs of awakening. I, did you not just get chills? It's just perfect. Also chilling, <laughs> thanks to uh, Ho'olealana's size, it may have rewritten how quickly we think the universe is expanding. It may be faster than initially thought, of course. It may be roughly 76.9 kilometers per second. Yes, 76.9 kilometers per second, as opposed to 67 to 74 kilometers per second. And um, I did some very basic math I multiplied, I was just curious, like, how many kilometers is that in a minute, and uh, multiplied it by 60, and um, that's a little over 4,600 kilometers per minute. <laughs> so, let's see, it's about nine minutes into this section. Uh, I'm not going to do that math, that's too much for me. But that's a lot of universe that just happened. So. Uh, watch this space, no pun intended, because Brent and the gang are working on nailing down those exact clickety-clack calculations as we speak, and there's a bubble, there's a bubble, everyone, a billion light years across, so please just do, do whatever you can with that. And thank you for listening, rating, subscribing, telling your friends, not only about the bubble, but about the turtle. <laughs> Tell them about the 
first war submarine used in Lower Manhattan. Uh, you know, it didn't didn't go. It didn't work. But but here we are today. <laughs> Good job, United States, and big ol' hole hole Lana size. Thank you to the folks over at Airwave Media, the podcast network to which WTI belongs. If you love this show, you're going to love the other podcasts in this family. And please, stay interesting.